One thing I'm starting to shape in my mind when I think about recovery is this idea of safety. And I think that's the missing piece of recovery, safety in our own bodies and safety in the world that we're living in. If we don't have a sense of safety, we cannot be recovered. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Cole Casda. Cole is an award-winning journalist who has written for Vice, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Magazine, and more. She's also produced television for Good Morning America, Nightline, and World News Tonight, and has told stories live with the Moth's main stage all over the country and on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR. She also lectures and teaches writers all over the world and is currently an instructor at the UCL Extension Writers Program. And Cole is the author of the brand new book, What's Eating Us? Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety. So I asked Cole to come on to talk about the new book where she really explodes a lot of the problems with our current eating disorder treatment system. It's an incredible mix of reporting and memoir. Cole is fantastic. We get into some really important issues in the nuances of how eating disorder treatment happens. That does mean we have to talk specifics and a few points about behaviors, numbers, and treatment protocols. If any of that is not going to be good for you today, please skip this. But otherwise, here is Cole. It's a wonderful conversation. Oh, but first, a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon and Cole Kasdan, who you're about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. I'm a journalist and now author. I worked in television news for many, many years and then left that work about 10 years ago to return to print journalism. If you're a freelance journalist, you end up reporting about everything, Every, right? Everything, C- yes. Crime and the environment and breaking news. But I found myself focusing more and more on mental health reporting. And in part, that was because I was in a very unsatisfying moment of eating disorder recovery myself. And when I started reporting on mental health, specifically 
mental health around eating disorder recovery and the eating disorder epidemic, it really shifted the focus of my work to the point where it was all I wanted to really write about and, Mm -hmm. you know, thus the book. It's called What's Eating Us, Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety. It is incredible, Cole. Oh, thank you. Your reporting is top-notch. And then you also put your own story into this, which I know can be really difficult to do, to really go there. And and you weave in other people's stories. I mean, it's just a beautiful mix of memoir and reporting. Oh, thank you. You talked a little bit about why this issue was so important to you, but what made you decide it needed to be a book and like this kind of book with the mix of your story and the reporting? I had an eating disorder on and off probably most of my college through adult life. Finally got treatment and was very prepared for that treatment to be excellent and I'm done and now we don't have an eating disorder anymore or anything else that went along with that. It was so unsatisfying to me that it wasn't remotely like that. It was more than residue of the eating disorder. I was not very healed. Mm -hmm. So I started approaching it as a journalist with the idea of seeing if I was the only one that felt this way. Is this in my own head? Am I crazy? Am I not able to recover because it's just me? And also, as you know, as a journalist, you can access people that would never talk to you if you were a patient. It's a definite perk. Yeah, for sure. So the more I researched, I was writing short pieces about why doesn't eating disorder recovery feel better? And what are the inequities in eating disorder care and the equities in diagnosis. And the more I started reporting this, the more people I spoke with, both everyday people like myself who were suffering Mm -hmm. and the experts, the clinicians, the researchers, the more I started to understand that not only was this not just in my head, this is the way it is. And understanding the scope of that, I felt an urgency to write a longer piece about this, to write a full book where I could reach all those points. And as it is, I use a lot of memoir because I think the transparency piece is very important. Eating disorders are very lonely and you really feel like you're the only one suffering, even though you know on paper that you're not. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted people to know how kind of messy and difficult it is to normalize that and that no one's alone if they're suffering from this. I mean, this whole concept of full recovery is so interesting. I feel like I was beginning to see some pushback about that in the eating disorder therapist community. My good friend Shira Rosenbluth has talked a lot about her own eating disorder journey and this idea of full recovery being, frankly, unrealistic for so many people given the current reality of treatments. Who currently gets to be fully recovered from an eating disorder? What is so tricky about this is that no one can agree fully on what it means to be recovered from an eating disorder. I mean, that's mind-blowing right there. Right. So some organizations and clinicians define it as you're no longer engaging in the symptoms starving, binging, purging, whatever, or whatever combination of those, right? Mm -hmm. Like that would be a metric of recovery, that you're Mm -hmm. no longer engaging in those symptoms. In so many treatments, underlying traumas or anything else that's contributing to why you might have developed that eating disorder is not usually addressed. 
I had a very good treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is considered a gold standard. I don't want to use the word standard because there really is no standard of care with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. But the definition of recovery is so nebulous. NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association, has a kind of definition where they say it's addressing the physical medical issues. So mm -hmm. whatever medical issues arose as a result of one's eating disorder, then the behavioral symptoms, again, that whatever behaviors you're engaging in that are disordered. And then the third category is the psychological piece, which no one can really define. Right. That's what we can't nail down. And even right there, that feels complicated because you might make progress on behaviors and even the psychological piece, but have lingering medical complications, right? So mm -hmm. that feels like a troubling metric. And then zeroing in on the behaviors in the same way that abstinence is not full recovery from alcoholism or drug abuse. Like just making someone behavior abstinent is not the same thing as actually working through the disorder. Right. And that's why I think it feels so tricky, especially because we move around in this world where all of these behaviors that supported our disordered way of being, dieting, restricting food, giving up, whatever the thing is, mm -hmm. they are completely normalized in our culture. So if we have a feeling, oh, I don't think I want to eat pasta. Okay. Is that the eating disorder? Is that just our world that we live in? Mm. I passed a store the other day or a restaurant in L.A., of course, where I live, so it's not so uncommon, that said <laughs> pasta, but with the calories of a salad. Like, I don't even know what that means. Oh, good Lord. I won't even unpack that here. We don't have the time for it. <laughs> but <laughs> if that's the world we're moving around in once we're recovered, right. then that's the psychological piece. And that's not even thinking about what your family history is and any other contributing factors. One thing I'm starting to shape in my mind when I think about recovery is this idea of safety. And I think that's the missing piece of recovery, safety in our own bodies and safety in the world that we're living in. If we don't have a sense of safety, we cannot be recovered. And I think the way you kind of insulate yourself from the diet culture world we live in is with community. So I think safety and community are kind of hand in hand. And that's what makes recovery feasible. Because for people, especially people in marginalized communities who may feel a stress of, say, everyday racism, mm -hmm. right? That person who may go through eating disorder treatment comes out into the world and still feels unsafe right, in their body. Yeah. So will they be recovered? So I don't think you can have recovery without safety. And I think that's one piece that's not really being talked about. Well, and that also often becomes such a complicated piece of it. I mean, for fat folks who need to recover or, you know, whatever weight they are in the active disorder, for anyone who needs to recover into a fat body, you're asking them to sacrifice the safety of their eating disorder in the sense that, like, it's harder to exist in this world in a fat body than in a thinner one. So there's that layer to it. And then also, like, all of that plays into who even accesses treatment in the first place, like who gets diagnosed, right? I spoke with Gloria Lucas for the book, who's an educator who's doing some really interesting work in this area. She works with a lot of indigenous people who have a real connection of their body to the land. Mm. Their body is the land. The land is their body. She said, how can anyone recover until they give the land back? 
I thought, oh, shit. It's not something we can sort out in our treatment protocols. It really shows the need for systemic change here. It's not just people's personal work to do. Exactly. So we kind of have to parse out what is the personal work that I can do? How can I kind of cobble this together? And you do, unfortunately, have to cobble this together because even if a person speaks to their general physician, that person may not know how to... Mm -hmm you know, refer them or what's the best treatment for them. So you have to kind of piece this together yourself and know that there's a lot of systemic elements here that may not shift anytime soon. You have a lot of examples in the book of these moments in therapy where it's just so clear that the treatment is not serving you or really anyone. There was one anecdote of the therapist who told you, you know, when the need to purge arose, like just journal or do a crossword puzzle. And you were like, have you ever purged? <laughs> like, I'd love to talk just more about some of other, you know, examples of this like one size fits no one advice and how that also becomes such a barrier to recovery for people. I mean, one size fits no one is the perfect way to put it because I cannot imagine any actual human who could benefit from some of this guidance. Mm -hmm. It shows a profound lack of understanding of the disorder. And I think that's also why so many people who have suffered from eating disorders may go into the field of treatment because they actually understand what someone is going through. I think another not helpful, and I would go so far as to say harmful, piece of therapy was, I guess, a sort of exposure therapy where <sighs> the therapist wanted me to begin to include foods in my diet that I had previously restricted. Now, that is not a bad idea. Right. That's the goal, ultimately. Right. I think it's important to have a diet where you can eat anything and you'll mm -hmm. choose what you like and don't like, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to eat everything, but you can. So she would give me assignments, sort of like eat a food this week that you previously restricted. Now, it was, I think, way too early in my recovery. Many of this, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, which did help me in many, many ways, I do want to say, but there is a real textbook. This is a 20-week program. This is what we do mm -hmm. week one. This is what we do week two. And there is no real attempt made to understand the individual because that's not even what they're trying to do. They want to change your behaviors using this way. And that might, I just envision that being studied for a population of people and not looking at individuals. Right. So she would assign me to what's something you never ate? Well, pancakes. Okay. So this week eat pancakes. Well, I don't think I was ready to eat pancakes. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we had talked a little bit more, just her getting to know me, Cole, and my behaviors, maybe she would have seen that and said, let's do that next year mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. instead of week six or whatever. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. Because then you're kind of like white knuckling your way through the assignments, which is what it feels like. And of course, many, many people with eating disorders do have black and white thinking, very rigid thinking. And I went into treatment really wanting to get an A+. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to do every single thing she told me, whether it felt right or not, mm -hmm. because I was still very sick. Right. It feels like a force feeding, and it yeah. feels really violating. And at the time, I went along with these things because I didn't trust myself, because I was 
I shouldn't have trusted myself, right? Because I had gone a very long time making very harmful choices. Mm -hmm. But there is somewhere in there where there needs to be an exchange Mm -hmm. where you also feel heard. Instead, I really felt like I have no agency. I'm kind of choosing to hand this over because obviously I'm making harmful decisions. I want to get better. A plus to me for even wanting that. And I'll do whatever you tell me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the parallels there to diet culture are so strong, right? Like, I can't trust myself. I have to follow somebody else. I have to follow this program perfectly. If I don't follow it perfectly and it doesn't work, it's my fault. Like, that's what diets teach us. So that's disturbing when this is supposed to have the opposite goal. I empathize for the clinicians sometimes, even the ones that give us advice that's not helpful or that can even be harmful, because eating disorders are so complex. Mm -hmm. And for many people, and I believe I'm one of them, not for everyone, but for many people, there is a neurological underpinning here that Mm -hmm. doesn't explain the entire eating disorder, but explains part of it. I did not get hungry. I needed to be told when to eat. I still do that. I need to sometimes treat food like medicine. Like Mm -hmm. you have to eat yogurt right now. You're not even remotely hungry. Just eat it because, you know, you're crashing right now. So it's difficult to understand that while also understanding that someone may have grown up a certain way where they treat food a certain way. Maybe they had food scarcity. Maybe they had a mother Mm -hmm. who always dieted. There are just so many factors in why these eating disorders manifest the way they do, and it can be different for every person. But the therapy does not usually approach eating disorders in that way. Right, right. We obviously have multiple diagnoses, but we still have this kind of catch-all, like, we don't really know what category you are, so we'll lump you over here, diagnosis, and... Obviously, that's doing such a disservice to everyone in that category. But even within a category like anorexia or bulimia, there's going to be so many different versions of that. So to have the therapy be this kind of cookie cutter approach, I don't even know if classifying it as subtypes would be helpful or just like further stigmatizing, honestly. But yeah, at least meeting people where they are and like when it's time to eat the pancakes, like putting the emotional support in place to help you eat the pancakes instead of just making it a homework assignment. Right. And wait being still such a factor throughout. We're hearing more backlash against the diagnosis of atypical anorexia, which still drives me crazy. And when I went into therapy for the first time, I was not weighed or medically checked or recommended to go to a doctor. I was very, very, very thin, but I did not look like someone who could be cast in a movie about anorexia. Right. So that made me wonder, oh, am I not that sick? Am I not thin enough to be that sick? And this was before the atypical anorexia classification emerged when I was in treatment. But you can't look at weight as we know that now. Like we can't look Mm. at weight as any indicator of whether someone is ill or not. Mm -hmm. But that is still a metric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole atypical anorexia thing is a nightmare. I mean, it's There's nothing atypical about it. It's most of the people with anorexia. It's infuriating. That stereotype is so harmful. I've interviewed folks who've talked about, like, eating disorder therapists, like, trying to be reassuring and being like, I won't let you gain that much weight. Or, you know, so the way weight is sort of handled throughout the recovery process is also pretty fraught. 
And is the idea of weight restoration correlated with BMI? Yes, Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Right? We don't have to pivot to a BMI conversation because you have those banked. Um, (laughs) My my audience is up to speed. (laughs) (laughs) But if that's the definition of weight restoration, that's problematic. So just define what weight restoration is, though, because we might not be as familiar with that. Right, of course. So if a person comes into treatment, when a doctor is thinking about how do we restore them to a quote-unquote normal, quote-unquote healthy weight, Mm -hmm. where do they go for that information? The BMI chart. Mm -hmm. I have heard people who, when they get to a certain weight in, say, a residential treatment, they are told they can now go back to restricting their food to a certain way, or you can return to exercise. Often people are not permitted to exercise if they are at a low weight. And again, if someone has the same behaviors but is in a larger body, I was told by people I spoke with in the book that they are told they can exercise because they're in a larger body. It's just wild. And we'll link to some stuff about atypical anorexia for anyone who needs to learn more about that whole conversation. Folks who come in in bigger bodies are less likely to get diagnosed in the first place. They're often sicker when they finally get to treatment. And then, yes, the behaviors are not taken as seriously. Or they're even like, well, we don't want you to gain too much. Like that kind of narrative around their weight restoration as opposed to what do we need to get you back to? And the classifications are tricky because there's the catch-all for everyone who doesn't fall into anorexia, atypical anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, purging. There's a catch-all for those people who don't meet all of the diagnostic criteria to fall into one. Most of the people who show up in community clinics for eating disorders are in that Mm catch-all. So that tells us something. I mean, the catch-all is exasperating, but good because someone could maybe get insurance. Right. You can get some treatment coverage. Right. Ha, ha, ha. As if. Uh, but maybe in, in some theory. universe. In right. theory. Yeah, on paper. In a um, European country, perhaps. In a European country. If you are in Norway. Yeah. Uh, Norway, you guys. Those criteria are necessary, maybe helpful for some people. But it also shows us how off we are as a scientific community, as a medical community, in understanding eating disorders. The fact that there's this and everyone else category. We don't know. You seem sick. It's maddening. It's so reductive and overly simplifying people's struggles. We also need to talk about the therapist who, as you say in the book, did legitimately help you in a lot of ways. And then later when you got back in touch with her, you discovered she was consulting for a weight loss company. And that's a real record scratch moment for a lot of us. They don't know that people understand how much a revolving door there is between eating disorder treatment and weight loss management. I wanted to be so careful with this because it not only makes me angry, but it breaks my heart. It really feels like a betrayal when you discover that not only someone maybe you worked with, but other people in the field, in high positions, in research, treating patients, are in relationships sitting on the board of a diet company or working with a diet company. It's crushing and I don't understand it. That's how I am as a a human. But when I flip to the journalist part, I want to really hold myself to task for what I'm not seeing because I went through this first person. So 
come on, what's the reason that someone in an eating disorder field would form a relationship with a weight loss company? There's got to be something I'm missing. And I don't think there is. I think weight loss companies have a lot of money. And I also think that people in eating disorder fields, being an eating disorder clinician is a rough job. A lot of your patients do not get better. There is no standard of care. If you are in this field, it's because I believe, I want to believe, I have to believe you care about people suffering from these disorders that Mm -hmm. you understand. So those people are not people who are like trying to make fast cash. So I'm trying to navigate myself in my own head why there's crossover, because there's so much crossover. Weight loss companies have booths at eating disorder conferences. Noom is in the eating disorder game. They're doing a ton of research. They have grants creating programs to treat binge eating disorder. Some of those programs look a lot like weight loss apps but have maybe therapy combined with the weight loss apps. It's still this weight loss centered model. Many people I spoke with who use weight loss apps also said it re-triggered an eating disorder for them. These weight loss apps are very dangerous, potentially very dangerous, but no, very dangerous. I can say that. And the eating disorder crossover, if one wants to be cynical, might think, as one researcher I spoke with said, they are creating a customer base. I mean, that's where I go. And when that researcher said it, I said, oh, you said it. (laughs) I'm just writing it down. (laughs) I also think from the weight loss company's perspective, it makes total sense because the thing they are always criticized for is that they are promoting disordered eating. So if they can say, no, no, we're treating eating disorders, that's like their solution to that as a PR nightmare. I remember reporting a story on Kerbo, which was Weight Watchers weight loss app for mm-hmm. kids. And that was very much in there like, no, no, this is preventing eating disorders because we're helping people do family meals and have f- schedules and regular snacks. And the fact that we have a list of red foods you're not supposed to eat that includes avocados and bagels is like, what? don't worry about that. So I think a lot of it from the industry's perspective makes sense to me. And I haven't seen... Doesn't mean it's not out there, but I haven't seen a lot of weight loss sponsored research on anorexia. There was that wild study. I cited it in my first book. I'll find it and put it in the transcript. There was a study, I want to say it came out of Columbia in like 2015. And the subject was something like lessons obesity treatment can learn from anorexia. I mean, I guess what I was saying is that no one's trying to treat anorexia. They're all of these studies that, right, that weight loss companies are doing work that is still not even thinly veiled obesity treatment. Oh, because they're like, we're solving binge eating disorder. We're solving binge eating because look at all these people that are using our app and losing weight. Maybe for six months, we don't talk to anybody after. Bye. So it's still all under that same umbrella of, you know, getting people smaller. Mm -hmm. And it still implies that people with binge eating disorder would be larger bodies, out of control, can't stop it. It doesn't address anything underlying. Right. Yep. No, definitely not. Yeah. It just assumes that the binge is the whole problem. And if you can solve that by teaching them restriction, 
how could that ever backfire? How could that ever go wrong? And a lot of these programs have, you know, food logs and calories. It's still kind of the same thing. And I'm not sure it can really help anybody. No. The other thing I'm thinking hearing you talk about what is the motivation on the therapist side's is I think it's the underlying anti-fat bias, right? Yes, It's the thinking of if we can just make everyone thin or, quote, normal weight, then we won't have to worry about all of this. Like, if we can just find that solution, this all these problems go away. Absolutely. And even in the, you know, not just the, you know, more nefarious weight loss companies doing research in the eating disorder field, but a lot of these university-affiliated Center for Eating Disorders and Obesity. Right. Right. You see that title everywhere. I mean, that was one thing when I was researching my book. I did not want to interview anyone that was connected with a center that is, quote, treating obesity the way you treat eating disorders. I mean, that to me, I find so offensive. Yeah. I mean, that's the study of what can we learn from anorexia to solve the obesity crisis, where you're just like, what are you doing? <laughs> How did we lose the plot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We lost the thread here, guys. Get it back, yeah. get it back, get it back, yeah, get it yeah. back. Life-threatening mental illness, not the solution. <laughs> and I still don't understand. I mean, I do understand, of course, but I guess it's just very disheartening when you see the eating disorder numbers. There was something, it's a line from your book, I keep thinking over and over and over again, this idea of to make a cake, you got to break a few eggs. And also don't let your kids eat cake. And also don't let your kids eat cake. That is the mindset, for sure. There's this idea, oh, at least people with eating disorders are controlling what they eat. It's considered the lesser evil instead of being understood for the like, immediate, urgent threat that it is to somebody's health. If you are concerned about kids' future health, if you're concerned about their metabolic health down the road or their heart health down the road, preventing the eating disorder is a good thing to do. Like, eating disorders are not great for heart health and metabolic health. So maybe that's step one before you get all in a lather about type 2 diabetes. Just a thought. Just a thought. There are comorbidities with eating disorders and other risks. People with eating disorders are at an elevated risk to attempt suicide. I mean, there are things that have nothing to do with body Mm -hmm. that people with this mental illness are at a higher risk for. And we don't think about that as much either, but it's an important part of the conversation. That's really the lie and the whole, well, it's all about health argument for the war on obesity is that if it was all about health, this would be the more urgent matter in front of you. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no question. So the book is just fantastic. I can't wait for people to read it. I'm loving seeing you on Good Morning America and all the places, and it's so great. So cool. We wrap up Burnt Toast with our butter segment. Do you have a recommendation for us? Okay, Tom Wamsgams. Is that how? On Succession. I think so, yes. Everyone is so unhinged on that show, and I just really am enjoying that. They are the endemic in personalities, (laughs) unhinged. Lost it's it. Amazing. It's I'm amazing. here for all of it. Yes. But I'm also loving the work of this artist. I discovered her through reading a piece in New York Magazine. I don't want people to think I understand art. Madeline Donahue, she does these beautiful paintings about Ooh. motherhood and just sort of all the tender tumult of motherhood, which I think is like my real butter, which is human contact right now. It's kind of like, I want to just touch my friends and snuggle my son and 
skim. That just is my, I think, that's the real answer. Human contact is my butter. That's a great answer. At the moment. But I'm excited to check out her work as well. I'm actually going to do an art recommendation, too. This is a very, or very, um... Fancy. Fancy podcast. So my better this week is Lindsay Guile, who is an amazing body liberation feminist artist who I've just started to kind of get to know. She lives local to me. She's also in the Hudson Valley. And she had this incredible exhibit at our local art center called Unapologetic. And it is, I'm not kidding, like eight foot tall charcoal drawings of beautiful naked fat women. And they are exquisite. Amazing. I'm just, like, obsessed with her. She's got a great Instagram, Lindsay Guile Studio, where you can see her work. She draws bodies in the most incredible way. And she's also delightful and a wonderful human being. So excited to shout out to amazing artists. And, of course, the train wreck that is Succession. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I love it. Cole, thank you so much for doing this. This was so delightful. Thank you so much for having me. And what you're doing here with this podcast in Burnt Toast, I think it really is building the solution. It's the only way to do it, to talk about it and grab more people into it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So tell folks where we can find you, follow you, and how to support your work. Oh, thank you so much. I'm on Instagram at Cole Kasdan, and my website is my name, and my book can be purchased wherever books are sold, but especially at your local indie bookstore. Thank you again, Cole. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And if you have a minute, leave us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show and it helps minimize the troll presence in the review columns. So we really appreciate it. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Soul Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.